hello again, listeners. I would like to tell you that we're here to present you our next episode in the series, but I'm afraid Tim, who's who's sat next to me here in the top secret missing episodes vault, seems to be on some sort of silent protest. Look, uh, are we going to record or not? Huh. And now he's handed me a bit of paper. Uh, I'm not going to record because you promised a games night and it never ever happens. Come on, Tim, we're grown men. All right, no need to get angry. We'll play a game now before the recording, okay? What do you want to play? Uh, for those of you at home, he's now holding up a card. Let's see, what's this say? A rainbow runs around the rim. Play this game and you'll lose to Tim. What? Tim, by the way, is now smiling and nodding effusively. Yep, I don't know what that is, you idiot. Will you stop honking, Brendan? Oh, it's another card. If you lose, I'll be the best. Then you can have a nice long rest. <laughs> Look, you, you seem to be gloating a lot, but I, I still don't know what it is you want us to play. Oh, what a surprise. Tim's given me another card now. Take a chance and roll the die. Perhaps you'll win a piece of pie. <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to hand it to you. You've certainly mastered elementary rhyming. Well done. You mean you want Trivial Pursuit again? Yes! Yes! Yeah! I'm sorry, I'm not used to speaking. So, you'll play if we record? Yes, all right. And we can play with quirky rules? Yes! Yaru! So, that's as good as a contract. Let's make the final preparations. Here's the game. I just have to pull this cord to open the fire curtain here. Oh, yeah, I wondered why half the vault was curtained off. Fire curtain, eh? Well, that's a fancy-looking chair with uh, all of those straps and um, shiny metal skull cap. Yeah, let's, let's just give it a test by pulling this lever. Oh, yes, I, I think I see now. If I lose, I'll have a nice long rest. As in, dead. Welcome to the Missing Episodes podcast. My name is Tim, and I'm joined by Paul. Yeah, good job I won, isn't it? Um, hello. Yes, well, the cards were obviously loaded in your favour. I mean, I was getting questions like, who was the second governor of Bermuda under British colonial rule? And you were getting stuff like, how do you spell cat? <sighs> oh, oh, well, never mind. Let's shake on it and we get on with this podcast. Friends? Yes, okay, friends. Ah! You idiot! This episode, we will be talking about the seventh story of season three, The Celestial Toymaker by Brian Hales and a host of other people, but we'll get into that. First, our guest for this episode, to commemorate the only missing episode found on Australian soil, we've recruited two of Australia's finest Doctor Who fans and missing episodes enthusiasts, nay, experts, Josh Snares and Kieran Hyman. Hello. Hello. Kieran first. Hello, welcome back. Kieran is a content creator, recon artist, colorist, worked on the Demons Blu-ray, so check out our bonus Demons episode because Kieran appears on that. One of the founders of the amazing Doctor Who photo research group over on Facebook and Celestial Toymaker Obsessive, I believe. Yes, indeed. It's my favorite Doctor Who story. 
no spoilers, by the way, uh, listeners. Two of us are not fans of the Celestial Toymaker. We've ascertained prior to recording, and two of us are very much pro. So Kieran's revealed his hand already. I wonder who the other one is. Um, and hello, Josh, who is that's me. <laughs> YouTube content creator, producer, animator. He makes epic videos about missing episodes. And he did the making of the U-Clan, Mission to the Unknown recreation, etc. And indeed, in a recent poll, was voted the second best ever First Doctor, narrowly beating Edmund Warwick, and second behind William Hartnell. I made all that up. <laughs> well, I'm happy to win that award. <laughs> I'm very aware that award does not exist, but I'll take it. <laughs> che- I've been checking out your videos again, Josh, and they are absolutely mind-blowingly amazing. And I see your missing episodes video has 277,000 views. That is insane. Huge congratulations on that. Yeah, it's a bit overwhelming. Thank you. That's like... Over 10% of people who tuned in to Legend of the Sea Devil. <laughs> Nobody put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing achievement. But yeah, welcome indeed. I also love your 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 videos, Josh. In fact, there's a really good one on a colorization that was done a year or two ago. Mm, I wonder who's in that video. Oh gosh, yes. How remiss of me. Uh, <laughs> Kieran is also part of the Dr. Hugh team who a couple of years ago, finished their colorization of Day of Armageddon with Rich Tipple and co. No, I am I, really happy that there's a big interest in missing episodes, and I'm really happy that my channel has um, broadened that audience a bit more so that stuff like this can succeed and people are talking about it and then people are thinking about it and then there's more people working on on these projects, which is so exciting. And I love what this fan base has to offer. And hopefully it's a brighter future for missing episodes to come. Yeah, indeed. And the name of the game really as well, ultimately is to spread the word that these things exist. And I can, I can tell you a little story on the importance of spreading the word. um, In that recently on one of the Doctor Who Facebook groups, somebody went into a camera shop in a village somewhere and it turns out that this camera shop had a room full of old films Mm. so i contacted a member of the rt and they went and visited now there wasn't anything there of interest as it happens but through spreading the word and and through our very small audience on this podcast we've reached out to people to go to their local camera shops and somebody is currently on their way to a camera shop to look at another room of old films that have been found so just spreading the word and putting it out there is incredibly important and 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 your reach is phenomenal there'll be 277,000 people who are nagging their you know relatives and grandparents and neighbors and seeing if there's bits of old films so it's really important work well, hopefully there's 277,000 people who have also followed you to listen to this podcast. Just imagine. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think on YouTube there is a big lost media phenomenon going on at the moment. There is a real popularity for it. And I think Doctor Who, for some reason, hasn't really broken into the, the YouTube realm of popularity when talking about lost media. 
Whereas, you know, when you talk to film collectors, they're all sick to death of us Doctor Who fans. Yeah. But I feel like that YouTube audience, that the younger people who could potentially be talking to like grandparents, like you said, and going out and doing this other stuff, maybe it's a new way of reaching them. And even through podcasts and, you know, doing stuff like this is an, another way of doing it because not even Doctor Who fans don't know about missing episodes. So why would just some random person down the street know about them? Sure. Yeah. Mm. How did you both get into the missing episodes thing? Because you're both clearly obsessed with it as as <laughs> as we are. How did you how did you come across it, Kieran? Uh really this goes back to when I first became a Doctor Who fan because the way I got into Doctor Who was when I was 5. The ABC here in Australia did a run of repeats of the show from Men on Earth Child onwards for the 40th anniversary. And I can tell you, thanks to um, John Preddle's website, Broadcast, that it was the 15th of September, 2003. And I got into it, and I was really looking forward to seeing what was coming up, because I'd got a new book that had just come out, Doctor Who the Legend, which was published for the 40th and has a page on every story. So I read ahead, obviously, and got to a page about a story called The Celestial Toymaker, uh. which had all these colour photos on it, which I've got right next to me, this book. Beautiful book. Got colour photos of Celestial Toymaker on multiple pages. And I was so excited. I even went to the back of the book and read... It lists all the William Hartnell individual episode titles. So I knew what title would come up on screen that I was waiting to see, The Celestial Toy Room. Obviously, it gets to the arc. We see that. And I'm sitting there waiting. Celestial Toy Room, Celestial Toy Room. What do I get? A holiday for the Doctor. Crushing disappointment. I flip through this book. This book doesn't have any answers. And then I find the page that actually does have the answers. And it's all about the missing episodes. And I am I fall into a deep depression to which I've never recovered. <laughs> and on that note, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> yeah, goodbye, everyone. Well, it was about that time that you know, I looked up online in the burgeoning days of the internet you know, when maybe the last recovery was of missing episodes. And I found that it had been the week before, because by the, this time it was like February 2004, right? So Day of Armageddon, episode two. So I was looking forward to the next recovery the following week, and that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Eight years later, Underwater Menace. Yeah. And it's been um, nine years this year since uh, missing episodes recovering. Yep. A new record and one which we could have done without. It's the longest gap, right? Yeah. yeah. It feels like it. Josh, how about you? I think the first time I ever heard about missing episodes was like, um, there was like a, on the season five DVD of the new series, there was like a making of feature about Victory of the Daleks or something like that. And they were talking about Power of the Daleks. And that's when I first uh. heard there was missing episodes because I became a fan when I was... 14 or 15 so I was a late bloomer and I watched Torchwood first which is weird we're not even going to go into that but I don't remember where I started with missing episodes but I do remember when I first met my partner I made him sit down and watch basically all of the William Hartnell reconstructions with me and he stayed with me so um I think he's either got real big problems or I don't know (laughs) was was he into Doctor Who at all or did you just sit down and and say there watch watch 
seven 25 minute photo recons of Marco Polo um he's watched a lot of Doctor Who I don't think he'd call himself a Doctor Who fan but um I think probably not anymore because I made him watch um all of them but um he's definitely seen the William Hartnell era because he knows it's my favorite so um did you at least spread them out so you could watch 25 minutes of photo recon a week or did you sit down and do it in a session or what we were watching them all in order that chronological order so from unearthly child to the 10th planet so it was over a few weeks um well kudos that's a fun way of finding out if your relationship will last if they'll watch photo <laughs> reconstructions it means they really like you and um also that's a form of torture so i should probably be investigated for that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the celestial toy maker now josh you've done a lot of analysis on why a certain project might be teed up for animation i thought we'd start with that because the celestial toy maker is three quarters missing but prior to the animations getting canned it appears it, it was never teed up for animation no i thought i'd have thought from um from a point of view of few characters simple set and a you know and and a, a certain reputation that it would be a, a first one up for animation what are your thoughts on that i think uh, a big reason why i think the sister toy maker wasn't really chosen was because the initial pitch was done before the randolph tapes turned up so the randolph tapes are uh, were a new discovery of off-air recordings of the episodes so just the audio and that's it um so the Randolph tapes were recorded by having a microphone pointed at the TV on its initial broadcast. They're not as good as some of the other episodes. So let's say, for example, like Power of the Daleks, that audio was recorded by Graham Strong. And they're very, very high quality because it was some technical thing where he wired it up to the TV and somehow recorded in good quality. I'm not a technical buffin. I'm not good at explaining it. But with the Randolph tapes, it's just a microphone pointed at a TV. Now, Graham Strong didn't record the Celestial... He did record the Celestial Toymaker, but then he recorded over it. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Mark Ayres, who has looked at this, he said that Graham Strong recorded over the Celestial Toymaker, so we only had roomy microphone recordings. But the Randolph tapes trumps those. So, basically, this means that it'd probably be a similar audio quality to Galaxy 4, how that animation came out. You could tell there was a noticeable difference in audio quality between Galaxy 4 and Power of the Daleks, for example. Sure. So I think where we're at now, where the audio is, if they think Galaxy 4 is broadcast standard, then, yeah, I think the Celestial Toymaker could possibly be a contender to be animated. But the Randolph tapes have not been released to the public. I've listened to them myself. These were initial observations by Mark Ayers, so... If they're actually good enough, is we don't really know. Yeah, I think that's probably a forgotten aspect of whether to animate or not the audio quality. Definitely, because um, BBC America, their initial intention was not only to do just a TV broadcast, but it was also going to have a cinema release. They wanted that option. So, for example, Power of the Daleks and Sharda both had a screening at a cinema, here in Adelaide at least, and I'm sure it was done in other places. I don't know that for sure. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. Yeah, so it's, the whole, whole intention was the audio has to work in a cinema setting. So which which other stories could potentially be in the same boat where the um, <clears throat> either Graham Strong didn't record them or 
the, the best copy we have still isn't up to broadcast standard? That's a really good question. It's a bit all over the place, but basically the safe zone, I would say, is after the Dark's master plan up until season end of season five, so Wheel in Space. Those are your good spots that we know that Graham Strong has most of those recordings, so they're a good standard. So stuff before Diet's Master Plan, we're talking like the Myth Makers, Marco Polo, those ones have the most dodgiest audio. But I I purely think that just because the audio quality isn't amazing, it doesn't mean it's scrapped, it's not going to happen. Because this is BBC America's standard. Let's say, for example, The Reign of Terror, that audio is shocking, but they still had a DVD release of it, they still did it. So it depends whoever is providing the funding next. Are they going to be as strict when it comes to um, audio quality? Are they going to be so strict with it has to be 16 by 9, it has to be colour, it has to be this, that and the other thing. So it really depends on who is giving the money, what they want out of it and what they, where, where they want it to go. Because some of these stories have been released on vinyl as well, Marco Polo, and I think the Mythmakers have. So from yes. a commercial standpoint, if, if they're viable for that, because they know that fans will buy them. Yeah, about BBC America was obviously concerned about its other viewers. Kieran, fans will buy anything. They'll buy Sonic Screwdriver barbecue tongs, so... Your words. Your words. You bought Sonic Screwdriver barbecue tongs, Josh. Thankfully not, but I have been gifted Sonic Screwdriver forks and knives before, so... I have a Dalek bottle opener. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. It'll be interesting to see if and when animations come back and what guys they will take because things are you know, complicated of course by they're teeing up all these Blu-ray releases and frankly mm. you know if they're tackling season two soon there's two episodes mm. of the crusade there which could have been animated although you know you've spoken in the past Josh about the number of characters and so on that make it a difficult yeah. option to animate but that won't have animation so it'd be interesting to see how in the future animations come back, if they do come back, and indeed what they choose to go for. So we're in the midst of this tumultuous and fascinating season three. John Wiles has gone, and it's a first Doctor Who producer's credit for Innis Lloyd and a second story editor credit for Jerry Davis as the transition from Wiles and Tosh to Lloyd and Davis completes. Is this the single most complex behind-the-scenes story that we've got? The, the, you know, the largest number of hands who have, have been delving into this pie or broth or whichever <laughs> mixed metaphor I'm going for. I'll go with the broth. We've had plenty of other stories that get hung over from one production team to another and they're either ditched or they are salvaged and massaged into something approximating the shape that the new regime wants. But really, this is, with it, this, the third level of rewrites, it's already gone through one level of rewrites after the producer leaves but the script editor stays on. He has a go for whatever reason. He doesn't like the script. It's also um, considered to be unfilmable. He rewrites it with the, the director, apparently, according to some accounts. And then when he's finally happy with it, Tosh, he leaves, two new uh, hands come in, a bit too late to change it for creative reasons. We're told yet again that the third set of rewrites, sorry, the second set of rewrites, the third draft is for logistical reasons. (laughs) We'll get onto all this later, the precise details. Let's work through it now as you've raised the spectre of, of the rewrites. So... 
Brian Hales is commissioned because he's mates with John Wiles, and he's already submitted a number of storylines to Dennis Spooner or Tosh, Donald Tosh, which have been rejected. But this one chimes with the vision that, that Wiles and Tosh have for the series, and so he gets the gig. So he submits a story which lays out the fantasy realm, lays out the idea of game-playing, but perhaps to curry favour with the new head of television drama series, Gerald Savory, he makes the opponents in the games two characters called George and Margaret. Now, Paul, you're a thespian of some repute. Hmm. Who are George and Margaret? They are part of that... um category of theatrical devices theatrical clever dickery they are uh, characters who titular characters who don't appear we all know wait, uh, the conceit of waiting for Godot for example I always assumed before I looked this up that uh, George and Margaret was Gerald Savory's attempt to produce a, a drawing room comedy inspired by waiting for Godot but in fact it proceeded by 20 years so it's, it could be the other way around perhaps, <laughs> perhaps Samuel Beckett was inspired by Gerald Savory you heard it here first but it's not really a high concept piece. It, I haven't read it. Um, I considered buying a copy of the script, but they're few and far between and rather out of our budget. But it, um, it seems to be a sort of sub Noel Cowardy drawing room comedy about a middle class family. It's a day in the life of a middle class family. They have a couple of friends called George and Margaret who they feel compelled to invite whenever they have a, an afternoon tea party or a dinner. But they really don't want to because George and Margaret are a pair of dreadful bores. And so, over the course of three acts, it is a, it is, the full title is George and Margaret, a three-act comedy. Over the course of three acts, this family, the, the mother and father, the, their th- two sons, their daughter, it's basically just an excuse for romancing among the younger generation. All this takes place while they are preparing and consuming three different meals, to none of which do they invite George and Margaret. But George and Margaret turn up at the very end, and that's when the curtain closes just before they walk on stage. Now, what's not clear is whether this, the play is about George and Margaret or if they are just a couple of names, you know, a conceit for everyone else to be talking about them. This, this play is, is an adult comedy. It is. Aimed at adults, I mean. I don't mean they're all at it on stage. It ran for 700 performances at London's Wyndham's Theatre. So it would have been very much de rigueur at the time and everyone would know about it. Yes, 1937, so we're now almost um, 30 years later. But Oh, gosh. So the family audience would be, at best, sort of semi-aware of it. I mean, the audience that we are ma- you should be making Doctor Who for wouldn't be aware of it. There's no way. Their parents might dimly remember it, but the, the children wouldn't. So that it does seem like a very curious thing to have latched onto. And, of course, the other thing that's being, that's being latched onto here is the point that we don't know anything about George and Margaret. They don't appear... It seems unlikely that their personalities are the subject of the play. It's just a comedy of manners with this high-concept frill. So the point would seem to be, and it appears to be Donald Tosh that introduced this, by the way. Um, a lot of people say it was Tosh that suggested it. Ah. Hales had the idea of the toy maker, which he... Um, you, you can tell that the toy maker was definitely Hales' idea because he, he submitted other ideas for the character later on, which, which Big Finish picked up on. We'll be coming back to that. It does seem like the sort of thing Tosh would go for. He was the sort of faux intellectual of the team at that point. And I, I imagine Wiles, Wiles sort of backed him up on that. 
But, you know, if the point was, <laughs> you can imagine Tosh himself at, a, at a, a dinner party fulminating on, oh, I wonder what the characters of George and Margaret were actually like. Wouldn't it be, it, wouldn't it be a delicious idea to, uh, to explore them somehow? <laughs> and I think the, the, uh, the best medium to, that, to do that with would be a, an episode of Doctor Who. The children would love it. Now, it, it's just such a strange idea. And um, when we get on to talk about the story in detail, debating whether or not the, you know, the, the structure of the story changed even once the characters of George and Margaret were replaced. It, it, I can't quite imagine what they would have been doing. What, if you take out the, pans the big pantomime characters we end up with and replace them with a couple of faceless, middle-class non-entities, and they are supposed to be dreadful bores, so unless, the, um, unless it turned the big reveal is that they're not, that they're actually more interesting than their own play suggests. This is it, because I'm thinking that you know, Savory probably wouldn't actually want his characters that are meant to be mysterious you never see them you don't know what they're like that's the sort of joke of the end of that play is that you don't see them having them featured it sort of ruins them does does it not yeah some accounts suggest that he initially agreed and then changed his mind i don't know whether we know that for sure or whether or whether he just hadn't read the memo properly <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a second but uh, i believe according to lord pixley that they were intended to start off being quite helpful and friendly and you know, jovial, and then throughout the four episodes, yeah. they were supposed to become more mendacious and threatening, and so on. So it would be a, a sort of gradual increase yeah. to the threat that they pose. Uh, but it sounds completely at odds with the play. So Hales has submitted his <laughs> initial story. Tosh, as you say, Paul has introduced the George and Margaret characters, but also Hales's proposed story is too expensive, so. Tosh rewrites to reduce the necessary budget. <laughs> Tosh then dressed the toy maker up as the Occidental Mandarin character, which we'll get to later. So they also wrote this in the knowledge that William Hartnell would be absent on leave for episodes two and three, although I'm not quite clear when they were booked in. But because of this long-running feud between wiles and hartnell they viewed this as an opportunity to actually write out hartnell replacing him with a and other perhaps the toy maker but before wiles could say patrick troughton hartnell signed a new contract uh, which again added to wiles's misery and he ended up <laughs> packing in <laughs> and then as we mentioned last time Tosh resigned in sympathy and concerns about his own health and ended up going on a delayed honeymoon for a fortnight during the genesis of this story, resulting in the script handling duties being handed to Wiles before he went. And then, Paul, as you alluded to, Jerry Davis came in and rewrote the entire thing. And as Kieran suggested... A driver for this was that Gerald Savory decided he didn't want his characters appearing after all, but this was so late in the day that Carmen Silvera and Campbell Singer had already been contracted to play George and Margaret, so one element of the rewrite that Jerry Davis did was to add a series of pairs of characters that Silvera and Singer could play. And then legend has it that Tosh and Wiles found out about this and were further disgruntled even though by that point they'd already handed their notice in what a mess is there anything to say about 
it's the Davis rewrites. Yes, you, you've you've gone through very thoroughly the um, the timeline of the involvement of these different people. One other source I read, I read an article by uh, James Curie Smith, the rese- the renowned researcher, which takes a more textual approach. So, <laughs> looking at the the finished script is like a you know like a piece of archaeology um, has echoes of all these previous versions. And one particularly interesting thing he says is that because these rewrites are done quite late on, they weren't sort of pay page one rewrites in the way that we would imagine a blank page rewrite they had to a lot of the the scripts have been written out typed up in standard bbc script format and all the changes had to be made on the existing pages in the same it's the same layout indeed so when dead yeah but basically this means that by the time davis came in to do what we think of as a complete rewrite in fact what he's doing is, is removing george and margaret the scenes with the toy maker and the doctor any scenes with um, Dodo and Stephen that didn't involve the supporting characters would pretty much have been set in stone. If there was no need to replace them, according to Kuray Smith's analysis, you wouldn't because you're on a you're on a you know on a deadline. So yeah, you you, you just um, you're just tipexing out sections of dialogue for George and Margaret and, and inventing new characters. Sure, literally you can see on the scripts that I think at one point Margaret has been tipexed out and the line given to Dodo. Yeah. And indeed, you can see George and Margaret mentioned in the script as well still, um, in, a, in a moment in episode two. Um, without wishing to get ahead into a review, I mean, one of my biggest problems with what we do have, there's no, not much sense of progression, narrative progression. It's very episodic. You feel like there could be, this could be any number of episodes. It's a series of games with no, you, you know, each, each episode has, <laughs> some people would argue, there's very little dramatic arc within the episodes but it's certainly not much from episode to episode every time it's another tile oh it's another fake you could just keep stringing this out forever it doesn't build dodo would be equally surprised at each one though (laughs) oh no it can't be she says (laughs) it does seem like it's been made for syndication doesn't it there is this strange specter of the idea that the possibly this george and margaret version for all the oddities that that suggests it would have had an arc as you said, the characters, Pixley thinks the characters would have devolved over the episodes from charming and helpful to sinister, and that could be what we need. Mm. Cranking up the tension, building up the atmosphere, whereas in, it just resets every week like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. So, yeah, although I'm mystified as to why you would choose these two characters in particular, I would rather like to see that version, because I think it could be a better piece of drama. Has he tried to reinstate that character arc with Cyril somewhat? That's a funny one, isn't it? Because um, they would have, you'd think, having, if you had the same regular uh, antagonists. That's my question. Because were they, the two actors, were they also contracted for episode four or not? Yeah. If you really were sticking to, if you were constrained by the, the sets that have been built and the actors and the, the details, the contracts that have been signed. Yeah. So there's no mention of where... Sir, what's the actor's name? Peter Stevens. Peter Stevens, yeah. There's no mention of where he would spring from. And he is, many people think, more effective because he has a, an edge to him, which the other characters... The other characters have a pathos, particularly the, the Hart family. But um, he has that edge, which kind of rescues the fourth episode to the extent that anything in it is actually... actually contributes to any sort of tension. It is his sneering little asides hmm how interesting and what a mess i'm just wondering if if is there any 
information on how long Carmen Silvera was uh, contracted for and whether Peter Stevens had also already been contracted by the time the George and Margaret stuff all fell through. Because maybe George and Margaret were always meant to leave the story at the end of episode three. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, how interesting. And Peter Stevens appears in three episodes as well. For all we know, maybe there's always another an old man in episode two that they... Maybe Jared, Jerry Davis was completely constrained to which characters he can invent yeah. in which situation. Unfortunately, the production file of this story is is no longer in existence, I think I'm right in saying. <laughs> Lamentably thin. Thank you very much, John Wiles. Yeah, that the era <laughs> is bereft of many things, isn't it? Episodes, production files, telesnaps, good audio. That's not his fault. Lots of photos, though, that's for sure. Sure, uh, but Peter Stevens' presence in episode three can barely be um, discerned on the audio anyway. He's the kitchen boy, isn't he, who is mute? Oh, has very little to say anyway. Yeah. Um, how interesting. And and we've got another debut in that we've got Hales and Lloyd. Very early credit for Jerry Davis, but then Bill Sellers makes his only directorial performance have we got anything to say about bill sellers when you're assessing directors in this era of who all you're really doing is ranking them on a scale of um richard martin to douglas canfield aren't you and to say that bill sellers falls somewhere in the middle is not to say very much but it does hopefully give give you an idea i mean the camera is generally pointing in the right place you know which is what gives him a few points but um you know he's a long way off actually managing to create any atmosphere now, well, episode four, I think, is is quite competently directed, and it, it in the hands of a lesser director, it could be interminable. I don't like to be picky, but for my taste, watching episode four, the fact that it is all about people standing on and jumping from one numbered square to another, he does it in mid shots, so you can very rarely see their feet or what they're standing on. So. Um, that kind of removes, and there's no, never any sense of the geography of this, this board. I mean, I'll, I'll, even in the arc, the previous episode, we get a nice, uh, they go to the trouble of getting a nice crane shot of, um, to give some scale to the, the sets. I mean, if we'd started each episode with one of them, we might have had an idea of the layout, the geography of the game. So even a simple technical point like that, I think he slightly botches. Mm. And actually, despite having saying it was, uh, <laughs> despite having said it was competently directed, there are numerous shots where the entire camera crew is reflected in those wavy metallic walls in the background. Oh, that's fun. And a few um, boom mics that uh, come across some of the robots and faces, one of which was uh, removed from the DVD release. He is hindered by the innate qualities of, of what he's having to shoot here. It's essentially three people rolling a die and jumping <laughs> from block to block. I mean, you know... I, I don't think David Lean could have done much with it, to be honest. I think also you've got to blame the set as well, because the more wide you get, the more cheaper it's going to look, because it looks like an episode of Play School half the time. And I and I don't think that's necessarily... Is it... Do we blame the director or do we blame the set designer or are we blaming the budget? Is this an idea that's just too big for Doctor Who? A lot of people criticise the sets, but I think they're actually quite nicely done. It's the fact that they're so small, it really needs a bigger sense of scale but it is sort of written to be in a sort of nebulous uh, i can see why they did it against a black background it's either gonna be black or white but either way mm. it's not necessarily a cost-cutting measure it, because it's set yeah. in this void outside space and time i can you can see why they go that way and 
certain set pieces like the large uh, doll's house which we don't get to see but you can see in the photographs it's pretty good mm, incredible I also think the kitchen set or the scullery or whatever it was is really beautiful as well. And those color photos, it's just stunning. But yeah, what I, what I really meant was like the, especially that last set with, if you got that in wide, I can just see how cheap it would look. But, um, yeah, I don't want to insult the rest of it. I think they must've spent all the money on the toy makers, uh, office knowing that it would be used in every episode. And those wavy metallic walls, which are probably from stock, seem to have only been found after the first episode, because it's only Mm. the first episode that doesn't use them and uses black drapes. I do feel like this is one of those stories where if it was animated, most people would be happy if they had a bit more latitude. Yeah. For example, if um, Gary Russell's team did Mm. it and made the sets bigger, I think there'd be less flack than they got on Fury from the Deep, which, because this isn't about claustrophobia, really, it's... um, no. Well, I, I've spoken to Gary about that, and we had we hashed out some great ideas. I think you could really, you know, do the characters as, you know, almost Disney style, make the the card characters actual giant talking playing cards, and you know, have Billy as a sort of sketch oh, style, wow. like, aha, you know. I I think it really come, because I, like that's such a huge redesign compared to something from Fury from the Deep, and you know. Doctor Who fans get annoyed about them cutting one little scene from the Macro Terror, so could you imagine something like that? <laughs> I think it would be incredible, because I think it might revalue the episode, but where where is the line from reconstruction to animation? Because I, I know Charles Norton and I think Gary Russell have both said it's about making a brand new production, and that's specifically what BBC America, I think, has been pushing as well. So where is that line? Because for me, I don't care about the line. I think if you make a good pro- end product and it's entertainable and it's watchable, that's good. But I don't know. Where do, you, where do you fall on it? I mean, I think that if you're making a, yeah, a new thing to introduce to new viewers, modern viewers, then they're going to expect things like, yes. first of all, 16 by 9 high quality uh, color stuff. So yeah, you may as well uh, imbue the visuals with a bigger scope that would appeal to them. And I would actually uh, change up the soundtrack as well. Don't necessarily treat the audio as though it's, you know, sacrosanct. Uh, add new special effects and uh, and music cues and things like that. If you're going to spice up the visuals, as an overall product, you may as well spice up the audio because the soundtrack will always be there on CD for anyone who wants it, you know. It's not a recreation of the original. Sure, but we're... we're... Where where do you stop? I mean, I'm my my passion is understanding what an original production would have looked and mm. sounded like. I don't really mind what the animation looks like as long as it fuels my yes. brain to be able to imagine what it actually would have looked like. And and therefore, the the BBC America animations aren't really my bag. Yeah. I think there have been instances where the feel of the original production has been lost like in the macro terror they put it on a massive vast sound stage and we actually know that it would have been quite claustrophobic yeah. and and contained so so my motivation is always to try and imagine what the original would have looked like but in this instance uh, i don't feel like there's anything to lose you know it needs enhancing and improving because frankly if you if you look at a recon it's such a physical story. The game playing is yeah. also physical. There's there's little you could do with a sort of Ice Warriors style animation. 
mm. you know the, the animation isn't going to capture anything so you need to do something that 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 goes the extra mile but i also think there's a line well if you're going to be editing the audio and you're going to be edit and creating your own special effects and imagining it was done on a bigger budget than it was then why use the audio at all do you know what i mean if you're starting afresh just re-record it yeah fair enough yeah so it's a it's a tricky one for me yeah i mean certainly the loose cannon reconstructions to my mind very much particularly this one because it's so good with all the photographs mm. they had to use really fulfills that uh, side of just wanting fuel for the imagination see the original and the animations are the other end of the table so let's have a look at some of the themes that are going on here let's get the elephant in the room out of the way uh, not to labour the point, but there has been great debate, especially in more recent times, about the use of the word celestial. Is there cause for offence there? Is it a racist slur? I personally think a bunch of white people saying what is and isn't racist is never a great, a great, great way to go. Um, I think if people find offence to it, then that should be a word we don't use. I've never heard the term be used outside of this episode being called it. But um, I think there is a genuine slur in the Celestial Toymaker, which would, I think, if there was an animation, I think that would be edited out. And I know Mark Ayres has gone to say that he would push to edit it out because he thinks that. I actually have written down what he wrote. He said, It would be easy to substitute and make absolutely no difference to the story other than it would no longer contain a racist term. And I think that sums it up pretty simply as someone who would work on that yeah if anyone listening isn't aware i would be surprised if there isn't because it gets brought up on gallifrey base about twice a day (laughs) there is a children's nursery rhyme used in the selection of a chair by the king of hearts it's the rhyme eeny meeny a bad word is used and the long and short of it is it'll never be heard again on a bbc release but uh, the more nuanced debate is or discussion has been around the term celestial i do have something more to say on the the slur that is uh, would be removed only to say that um having been looking at the camera scripts today if it's of any interest it's not in this camera script it mentions there's a stage direction that says the king of hearts is, is selecting his chair and says um he eeny meeny miny moes at the chairs and goes to select one. So how exactly it was worked out on set, uh, mm. we don't know. Lost of time. We need to excoriate the memory of the late Campbell singer. Well, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, it, it, it was probably just repeating the, the iteration of the the nursery rhyme that he knew, you know. which I mean, I wasn't alive at the time, but I imagine it was in the 60s into the 70s that it was evolving from the original into various euphemistic versions that allowed people in my generation to carry on saying it, but <clears throat> replacing it with um, cuddly animals. So, but of course, he would have been the generation who... Uh, well, you know, some people think that this story is an expose of um, of the British Empire. So perhaps Campbell Singer was, was trying to make his character look more authentically... Um, racist as as befits such a satire jim smith i don't know if you've read his essay but he turns it into uh he says that well queen victoria is in it um the occidental mandarin character is a typical sort of victorian british character but we'll talk about this later 
and basically it's an expose of the evils of empire and British colonialism and I just think it's a bridge too far yeah you can read that into it but we know that the script went through so many scripting it went through so many hands that anything like that would have been lost so they arrived at the name the celestial toy maker intending celestial to be of the stars and it appears that donald tosh thought well let's have a double meaning here and they dressed him up in a in the in the chinese mandarin's costume it's difficult to say really how deliberate it was in the sense that Tosh has, you know, been on records talking about the way that the word celestial was added to the script uh, at some later point. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't in it originally. It was just the toy maker and, and the toy room. And uh, you can see the evidence of that in that the word celestial only appears in the dialogue of the story a total of twice, which is both in episode one. When Hartnell says, mm. uh, you know, we are now in the domain of the celestial toy maker, and a bit later Dodo says, who is the celestial toy maker? And the costume is from Stark. It's not a costume specifically designed for the character. I don't know how it was described to the costume department, how, what they were looking for, but it's the same gown that uh, Mark Eden wears in Marco Polo towards the end of that story as Marco Polo. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. Mark Eden is another Occidental Mandarin. Although he didn't wear the um, the collar section of the costume or the hat. Well, quite, but he's a genuine Mandarin, isn't he? He's a genuine mm. appointee of the the Cathay court. Yeah, they're two very different uses. Sure, you can you can imagine. I can imagine this uh, character appearing, popping up in a Sherlock Holmes story. You know, a sort of former mm. <laughs> former military type, perhaps, who spent some time yeah. in. I don't know the Boxer Rebellion and then came back and wanted to hang on to the vestiges of his his time in, in China. Yeah, it's certainly not designed to be, you know, a Chinese character. And Yeah, for, for anyone out there who's, who thinks there might be more to this than that, Michael Goff is not in any way try, uh, doing a yeah. funny Chinese voice. He just sounds like Michael Goff. He's not in makeup. And if they wanted to put him in, in that sort of makeup, they would have done because they were still perfectly happy to do that. Uh, you know, eleven years later in the towns of Wang Chiang, so there was nothing stopping them. I think Tosh has actually said in uh, you know interviews later in his life that they deliberately didn't go down too far down that road. I think they were trying to evoke something of that sort of mastermind character, but they didn't go too down far that road because they had just done so with Mavic Chen the month before, you know. Celestial is in lowercase in the script. Uh, Kieran pointed this out when we were prepping the podcast, so that would would imply it is very much the of the stars usage, I think. Would a derogatory term be capitalised when it's describing a nationality? I I don't know. Who knows? All it says that it's not his name, that's all. Um, yeah, it also appears in the title for episode one, which is the Celestial Toy Room, which is um, the room in which the, the blind man's buff stuff happens. Absolutely. So that, I think, is the clinching argument, isn't it? Because the, <laughs> the, the Celestial Toy Room itself is by no means, uh, you know, a nod to, you know, it's not a way station at LOP, is it? It's a Victorian nursery. No, it, it's very hard to really make a definitive call at this distance 
But the word celestial comes up at other points in Doctor Who, and it comes up a lot in science fiction, talking about you know, aliens. Things like, I was watching Sabrina the other month, and they have their, their race of beings called the Celestials, for example, you know. It's, it's a great word in, in its own right, I think. Yeah, and, and they're not two completely separate uses. The, the, the primary meaning is of or pertaining to the stars, isn't it? And that's where the secondary meaning, which appears to have been more common in America, and certainly as a, as a racial slur, it was only ever, in, I believe, in America, Americanism rather than Britishism. Yeah, to mean something of the other. Yeah, which is you know, no doubt where the slur comes from. Okay, well, let's look at the broader themes here. Uh, and I think, I think the broader themes is, what, is why this story has such appeal. So there's a, it's about a subversion of comforting children's games, isn't it? And the subversion of nostalgia, maybe. Yes, I suppose it's I suppose it's doing a Moffat there several decades earlier, but rather more literally. And also, it's like that's the starting point. It's like it's saying this is what we're going to do. We're going to set out and make children's games creepy because you know we all know they are a bit. They've all got that potential, especially Victorian style children's toys. That you expect to see when those little monkeys with a pair of symbols. Um, sorry, <laughs> do you know the type I mean? Oh, those little wind up um, monkeys that sit there doing that. That's the most freaky Victorian toy I can think of. And yet, and yet, it doesn't really, does it? It doesn't get much beyond. All oh, clowns are a bit, clowns are a bit scary, aren't they? But it sort of leaves that idea hanging. We may never know what Hales would have done with the idea of the scary toys and games, because we don't know for sure what's him and what's Jerry Davis. The the playing cards come straight out of Alice in Wonderland. The Sergeant Rugg and Mrs. Wiggs come apparently from an old pantomime sketch. And by this point, <laughs> he must have been rewriting so furiously that he forgot to actually introduce any jeopardy in that episode. It's often pointed out that there's no electrified floor, there are no deadly chairs. That you know, there aren't um, tra- traps in the pies that are going to cut your hand off. There's nothing. Yeah, it becomes unclear, doesn't it? I, mean, I think, I th- for me, the idea of a children's parlour game or nursery game where if you lose, you die... I think that's very powerful. But this becomes somewhat confused in the storytelling because sometimes the threat is that they must complete the game quickly and sometimes the threat is if you lose you're going to die. So the idea is really powerful but it's diluted by meaning something slightly different every time they play, for me. Yeah. I think this must be a a result of the many hands make make shite work aspect of the story. (laughs) The... The thing that comes across strongest for me is the fact that if you lose, you become one of the toy makers' playthings. That still comes through reasonably strongly. You have to squint a bit and use your imagination. And again, it's part of why I think episode two is the, the best because the um, the humanity that Dodo detects in the King and Queen of Hearts. As I said, it's there's more pathos there than actual anything actually unnerving in the in the finished version. But it's a nice idea. And I think, it, uh, <laughs> again, oh, are we going to come on to the, um, Hales' other use of the toy maker in Big Finish? But there's yeah. one later on. But I think that is an element that comes through in the other story that he completed on his own without any interference. So it's clearly something he, something, you know, that he brought in that did just about remain in the finished product. 
How does everyone feel about it being a fantasy realm? People always talk about it being a fantasy realm. Does that is that conveyed? Is there a strong element of fantasy here? Do we feel like it, there's, there's something of the unreal about it or the intangible? Like the mind robber feels more like a fantasy than this does. But it also feels like, I don't feel like they've landed in the Celestial Toymaker's ship or on a planet somewhere. It's in the weird, not quite fantasy enough, but also not so generic. Does that make sense? Hmm. What it feels like, it feels a bit like that episode of The Chase where they land in that haunted house. I feel like at the end you could just zoom out and it's this crazy guy's place, you know? It doesn't necessarily have to be some weird world this is that's true because they bottled it in the chase didn't they they wanted it to be a fantasy realm another dimension and then for some reason change of production team they bottled it and decided to announce they were just robots mm. for me the, the celestial term slightly botches that fantasy ethereal otherworldly air i mean in the same way that the mind robber does i'm I'm that person who doesn't think the mind robber is quite i don't think the mind robber is as much an improvement on this as ever <laughs> as everybody else does the Mind Robber is supposed to be a dream world, another dimension, but it's run by a computer, you know, and that's always slightly bothered me. Why bring it back down to Earth again with something mechanical? The same is true here. There are lots of machines around, which, and there's a rather peculiar bit where the Doctor, it takes him a little while to work out where they are, but later on, he seems to know, not just, recognise not just specific games that Toymaker's playing, but he tries to tell him which chair it is, as if he's played that game and the, and the Toymaker hasn't even changed the numbers around, which seems a bit <laughs> unlikely. But, um, but yeah, that's another example of it all being a bit more closed and literal than and prosaic than it should be. Yeah, I think the only real mystery that is left at the, the end that is that regarding the Toymaker and the Doctor's first meeting... Because the Toymaker is the first villain in Doctor Who who has had a history with the Doctor that was not seen on screen. He's the first one to say, ah, I, we've met before. We don't see their first encounter. Uh, and I think in earlier drafts of the script, he was intended to be one of the Doctor's own people, like the monk. But that's all ironed out. It is interesting how much it... Um, it resonates with the Eternals from Enlightenment, a, a creature who lives forever and is so should be above human concerns, but they're so bored that they, they want to play human games because it's the nearest thing they can with real human pieces. It's exactly the same idea, isn't it? So, yeah, it's got this appeal, this brilliant idea of, of the subversion of, of all things from childhood, and then it uses this structure of games but without reviewing it as such, does the game structure work? So in episode one, you've got about five minutes of them laboring the point and the rules over and over again. It is literally a five minute scene of the toy maker explaining what the rules are to the doctor. It takes five minutes out of an episode that Hartnell is only in for 15 minutes. And he, then he does the same with Stephen and Dodo. You must win your games before he does. There's an attempt to set up an air of suspense about how many games they will be, because there might be a real TARDIS at the end, or a fake TARDIS, um, which Dodo is very slow to latch on to. But presumably, watching now, you know that there'll be the correct number of games to fill four episodes. But it also becomes painfully clear straight away that the toy maker and his pawns just cheat 
they are in complete control of all of the parameters of the games. The Doctor's game, there's no sense of fairness at all or challenge there because he's moving this game on hundreds of moves at a time. So, unfortunately, it's the necessity to move on the plot and tie it back to this initial rule that Stephen and Dodo must complete their games before the Doctor does seems to make it all rather pointless. Yes. Toby Haydock in his review points out that it doesn't make much sense from the Celestial Tormaker's point of view, character-wise, that if all, if all he's interested in his life is game-playing, why cheat? Um, and it would make some sort of sense if he didn't know that his playthings were cheating and that that was an aspect of their humanity coming out. Perhaps they cheat because they get their humanity back. You know, if, if the King Queen of Hearts beats Stephen and Dodo, they could swap places and escape. There's no, there's no suggestion that that's the case. It might have been a way of improving it, giving it a bit more tension. Yeah, and also, why if the toy maker is after a battle of wits with someone with great intelligence, finally, why then give him a one-player game? He appears to be very petulant and a bad sport. So, but that, what does that feed into? Does that feed into the wider themes? But the problem is, the problem is, Kieran, I was just about to go there myself, is that there's a battle of wits on one hand and then a sort of quest challenge on the other hand. But the battle of wits is taken out at the knees because one of the two <laughs> opponents in that battle of wits isn't there. So you could think that there might be some reaction to him moving the game on 200 moves at a time or whatever, but there is no reaction. So it just becomes repetitive and yeah. meaningless. Dramatically, there's no reaction from mm. the Doctor. And plot-wise, there's no reaction from the toy maker, Other than, you, know, you have those times where the Doctor tries to talk to Stephen and Dodo to tell them what chair it is, and that gets his punishment of um, moving the pieces forward, because it's, it's a battle of time more than anything. They have to finish their game before the Doctor finishes his. But then there's also times where the toy yeah. maker says, you're moving too slowly, go for a move. And he just pushes it forward himself. So yeah. the, the man's insane. It'll be interesting to know if um, it'll be interesting to know if Hartnell's holiday was uh, a given right from the beginning when Hale was writing his first draft because it's it's said that Tosh in his first rewrite introduced the trilogic mm. game and the trilogic game is the entirety of the Doctor's plot so did he introduce that specific uh, specifically as a way of getting the Doctor out for two episodes or was the Doctor already absent and it was specifically a way of of trying to fulfil the Wilds master plan of getting, giving him the boot. The trilogic game, for me, sums up the whole problem, really. It's, it's, it's a good and a bad idea. I mean, it's fundamentally bad. It's fundamentally bad because watching people playing games is not dramatic. Drama comes from random human interactions and character-based interactions. Rolling dice is the antithesis of drama. You can't affect it. You're you're at an extra remove from the drama. You try, the drama should be sucking you in, but you're just distanced because you can't control it. It's really frustrating. As anybody who's been forced to sit watching, you know, a friend playing, especially playing computer games all afternoon, is oh no. But so it's a terrible idea watching people playing games. And the trilogic game is the worst example of that. But on the other hand, it's only there as a plot device to give us a countdown. Without that, there's no way of knowing how long this story is going to go on. So it's the only thing that comes close to giving us any kind of marker of how through this, far through this journey we are. 
so as a, an answer to a problem of how we get any sense of progression is is functional one of tosh's complaints at the finished product was apparently that davis had downplayed the trilogic element but i don't see how that's a valid complaint because it was already downplayed from the off depending on when hartnell was on holiday for two weeks what what else could it have possibly had that was better than what we got i don't know but it's been suggested on this podcast and everywhere that Tosh was somewhat of a revisionist. <laughs> I'm not quite sure about the games themselves. There's no consistency in how they're won. In the first game, they seem to win by virtue of Joey not completing the course, but they didn't have to complete it themselves. But in the fourth episode, the point is laboured that they must complete the game themselves fairly to be able to win. So there's some inconsistency there on top of you know the 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 changing nature of the threat as to whether they don't complete or yeah. incomplete and the games are just a bit shit they're all, they're old fashioned even for the 60s aren't they yeah the real one that could work is the chairs i think that could work devising six ways of dispatching people in a horrible way so the only one where the, the their opponents don't cheat as well i think i'm right in saying because they do actually, they lose, really. The king yeah. and queen. Sure. I also think it makes, like, everyone's moral choices, like, are we going to make someone sit in a chair? And I think that makes the characters more interesting as well. Like, is Stephen willing yeah. to put someone random in a chair, or are they going to sacrifice themselves? Like, I think that's more dramatic than any of the other episodes, even if it wasn't amazingly executed. It had potential. Just one more random thing. I mean, I don't suppose anyone's that excited about being able to see the dancing floor section again but at least at least i feel like i'm scraping around for faint praise but at least dodo and steven use some logic to get out of that um it's a logical solution you swap partners so that you're done with each other and the dolls done to each other i mean it doesn't sound like much but how and when people are writing this sort of program under this sort of pressure they often use the far more nonsensical ways of getting out of a situation than that so you know that's a plus one for me yeah and actually um that sequence is probably the one that suffers the most in the whole story for having been lost because at least with the blind man's buff the sequence you can see by the obstacle course what they're doing where they're going to be going but we don't actually know what the choreography was um, which was choreographed by the same chap who was in Marco Polo as the the monkey one-eyed guy, the eye patch. Tutti Lemko. That's the chap. And again in the Crusade, part four, I think. Is yes, it? indeed, I think, yeah. Every one of his contributions to the program <laughs> yes. has been lost. <laughs> crew emerge from the TARDIS in episode one, they are confronted by a memory window. Uh, this is in the belly of a Teletubby robot, and Stephen and Dodo are confronted by images from their pasts, haunting mm. images. Now, some of these images are from missing episodes, Kieran. Uh, what exactly did we see? Yeah, so in episode one, on the screen we see footage from steven's perspective of him holding the time destructor 
and of him in Paris. So that'll be footage from Dark's Master Plan, episode 12, and an episode of The Massacre. Thought to be the sea beggar, I think. Is it thought to be the sea beggar? I think so, yeah. Excellent. Uh, the other thing I'm not sure on is if we see it sort of full screen, or if it's purely just seen on the robot's chest. Because uh, it, it says in the camera scope, you know, tell us any sequence, fed to screen on a robot. Whether that also indicates a cut to or not, I'm not sure. Does it say how long? No. But the the sequence, when you watch it as broadcast, as recorded, you know, is is not even 20 seconds. No, it's very fleeting, isn't it? And and in episode four, we see the Tommy Maker talking to the TARDIS crew via one of the Teletubby screens. And it's in a sort of medium shot and it's very small in the screen. And then they do the excellent reveal where the Tommy Maker is actually stood next to them. Standing there. Yeah. That, though, is um, is a live feed from a studio yeah. camera being fed to the TV. This is a Telecine film clip being played in. Uh, there's also a reference in the script. I was just going to say, at worst, that's what we're going to get, isn't it? If it turns up, is this very small picture and a fleeting handful of frames from each each story. Yeah, I mean, what it says in the camera script, you know, Stephen's gone to one of the walls. As he reaches it, the light force, which it had before, begins to pulsate. He stops and gazes at it. We see it from his point of view as a picture begins to form. Oh. Telecine sequence, fetch a screen on a robot. He, parenthesis we, sees himself with the time destructor. So I'm not sure what if they're trying to make a point specifically there of us seeing it from his perspective. So he's not in shot when we see it. So whether that means a full screen cut to of the telecine or not, I'm not sure. But the next shot is medium close-up of Steven. Hey, look, that's me. Close-up screen on robot. Dodo, what is it? Uh, what is so I think at that point we see a close-up of the screen showing at that point it would be master plan footage. Steven there on that screen. Cut to again, telecine sequence B continued. Uh, it changes to a sequence of him in Paris. So that, again, because they've detailed the telecine sequence again, maybe that indicates another cut to full screen. Mm. Uh, but then next shot, at medium close-up dodo what screen. And then we have... A medium two shot of the robot and Steven with a telejector slide on screen, which is a, a slide of the robot's regular chest played on the monitor to look like there's nothing on the screen. Sure. So from that's to signify that from the Dodo and Doctor's perspective, they're not seeing anything. Steven says, uh, there, that's me in Paris. There's nothing there. Medium close up with the Doctor. Steven, don't look at it. I know where we are now. We see the wall from the Doctor's angle, and it is blank, is what it says. Then, curiously, we have uh, a three-shot, and Stephen says, it's changed again, there I am in the arc. And that's not in the finished product, he doesn't mention the arc. Uh, but we, he still says, it's changed again, which indicates that it, it, it's a bit of a, an error, that I think, because uh, he says it's changed again when, evidently, it's only changed, it hasn't changed yet, you know? It's only changed the once. The whole sequence is a bit weird, because the selection of those clips... Master Plan and Massacre suggest that the um, and then followed by Dodo seeing the day her mother died suggests that Lester Tommy is trying to show them he's trying to upset and unnerve the, the companions by showing them scenes of their great you know most upsetting things they've been through but 
they're not yeah. given any time to react. Well, specific, specifically Stephen. He goes, look, it's me on Kemble, as if he's excited. So clearly Peter Post has no idea that that's what's being implied. Well, that may have been some sort of snafu that happened when working out on the set, because, like I say, it, the timing changes, because he says, uh, the script says, there, that's me in Paris, which changes to here, that's me on the planet Kemble, he says with great aplomb. I think changing there <laughs> to here probably indicates yeah. the difference in set design instead of there on that wall, it's here on this screen. Uh, and then a bit later, there I am in the art becomes, that's me in Paris. So I guess they may have just thought the film insert was too long. They tripped the stuff, yeah. trimmed the stuff from the arc and just had the two shots. I think I feel like the, impl- the implication of the intent of all that got lost somewhere. I, I went in the book, I was expecting to find that ma- made much clearer, but um, it doesn't even mention Dalek's master plan in the book. Did you, did you mention, yeah, in the book it's the, the massacre and the ark for some reason. So that obviously wasn't Probably Jerry Davis's based idea. Based off of the script, I should think. Um, yeah. As Dalek's Mars plan's not mentioned here. Unless, of course, they weren't allowed to mention Daleks. Perhaps they would have had been charged more if they'd even... Uh, yeah, potentially. So Dodo sees some footage of the day her mother died. Is that correct? Or a funeral? Yep. It's a, uh, a medium shot of her... It's a close-up, really, of her, her face, and she uh, moves forward to towards camera. We have a shot of it in that we have a photograph taken by a designer... Uh, John Wood, which is on the set of the the toy room, and in sort of the far background, you see the robot playing mm. that shot. It's very blurry; it's very far away, but you can make out basically a human head with a beret and a tie on. So we we have that small section. Unfortunately, no photos of the robot whilst it's showing anything from Master Plan or Masker. Yeah, it's kind of strange that they show some bespoke footage of that because they haven't gone to those lengths to create, as Paul said, you know, disturbing memories consistently for what Stephen saw. I mean, him wandering around the streets of Paris isn't innately traumatic, one would have thought. But yeah, no, interesting. It is, of course, a creepy idea in itself that somebody can, someone's been watching you. But it's not a new idea for Doctor Who per se because they've got the time-space visualizer in the chase. And they go back to the idea in The Savages. Those, those glimpses make it uh, a more wanted return for me. In fact, even though it is glimpses, it, it, it knocks it to fairly close to my most wanted return, I should think. Episode 1. And keep Episode 3. Talking about this story's connection to other missing episodes, the sequence in Episode 1 where we see also played on uh, the robot screen it, we see a shot of tar- many tardises going past that have the toy maker has created on a conveyor belt that is a model shot uh, that is made using a photograph taken on set of marco polo episode one mm. of it on the snowy landscape uh, which was taken originally to be used later in marco polo as a photo blow-up where ian uh, confronts Tagana. it's seen in the background that photo was obviously on file, and they used it, printed out multiple copies, and that's what we see going past. That photo, the original print, still survives in private hands, so we can see what that would have looked like to a certain extent. Fantastic. How interesting. Okay, let's talk about the characters and the performances uh starting with the doctor does anyone want to go first 
Well, we don't see much of him. That's true. He's particularly weak in episode two, where he's pre-recorded his dialogue and clearly has no idea what he's saying. Likewise for episode three. Like, even from like a technical perspective, it's very clear that he, like the way they set up the microphone, he's just speaking directly into a mic. Like, they haven't even bothered to, like, uh, record him, like, via a boom or anything. So it's it's really jarring. Yeah. I've got a bit of a, not a bee in my bonnet, but I always prefer Hartnell in the historicals because Hartnell is a more comfortable ground, obviously, and very often comedic, and he can act his comedic way. But when he during his brief appearances in this, he's quite deliberate with his dialogue. He's quite plodding. He's finding his way around. No fluffs, but, you know, it, I, I don't feel, and part of the reason I prefer the early in the early Doctor Who, the historicals to the the sci-fi, I think, is because of the lead role and how he carries it off. But I did notice, I wasn't half relieved when he came back. And he did feel like the inclusion of the main character brought the thing alive again, having just sat through 25 minutes of Hunt the Thimble and Avoid the Dolls. So I'm a bit torn. It did feel like it came back to life, the story, when he, when he, he was in it, came back at the end. And it did feel like it lost something when he was removed from it, as we've already discussed. It's worth questioning as well. The Doctor going invisible, turning invisible, mm. is that a product, perhaps, of his relationship with John Wiles? Because his pre-film sequences in episodes two and three usually when a person goes on holiday a cast member they pre-film their sequences so that they can appear in the episodes whilst the week they're being recorded in studio they're on holiday so why is it that in the sequences that he pre-filmed he's invisible because he was there to pre-film them isn't it because simply because they were think trying to pave the way for getting rid of him so first he's in one episode then you can episode two you can see him sorry you can hear him episode three He's completely disembodied. So when in episode four, when he turns up played by, um, I don't know, Mr. Pastry, uh, then you've, you've, you've had a week off and suddenly nobody cares anymore because they've all forgotten William Hartnell. You know? <laughs> it's pretty calculating if you th- and cold if you look at it that way. So that's it. He's, he's pre-recorded because he's on holiday, but he's invisible because they were trying to get rid of him. Looks like it. Yes, and I'm not quite sure the order of events, whether he took, ho- he took holiday at short notice or whether that was already in the bank so to speak because it was quite a stressful time he'd given an interview at some point where he said he he doesn't think he'll be in it very long and then he he quickly had a a change of heart and said he thinks he'll be in it for five years and so on but yeah I think it's just all of that unhappy atmosphere that's going on but hey Hartnell won didn't he (laughs) because not only did he get a new contract and get to work with a, a slightly more sympathetic producer but Wires left. Who still got rid of him? Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. But in a in a slightly more sympathetic way. He was nice to him while he <laughs> while they worked together. Yes. I said it pointed out that Jerry Davis, this was so down to the wire, would have been rewriting each episode as as on you know in sequence, mm. and that possibly he didn't even have he wouldn't have been able mm. to write Hartnell back into part three. It wouldn't have been until he was working on part four that the news came through that Hartnell was back and. And he would have, you know, that would have been his main job for rewriting part four. No longer remove, strike out Stephen and Dodo saying, but Doctor, you don't, you don't look the same. <laughs> Which is probably all we would have got, let's face it. Or maybe not. I mean, we, we didn't even get a, 
Dodo, you sound different in the arts. So <laughs> they might not have mentioned it. All that business about voices. There's a line, I think, in episode two where Dodo says, we don't even know if that was the Doctor we heard. It could have been the toy maker mimicking him, which people think is set up for part four where the, with the Doctor's amazing twist where he can mimic the toy maker. But it, it could also have been set up for the Doctor t- coming back, not sounding himself. We, hmm. we may never know. Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. I say this every single time. Peter Purvis is very game, isn't he? And and Stephen has to carry the entire thing pretty much yeah. by himself and sort of try and re-inject any drama into the games. <laughs> Mostly by shouting and being extremely grumpy. Sure. But it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of Peter Purvis's favourite uh, stories, isn't it? He's talked about that before. Has he? You can understand that because I think, yeah, this and the massacre he's yeah. mentioned, probably because he is the lead mm. character, really, for both of those stories, where Hartnell is absent. Yep, yep. There's no dispute that he's the lead. His his one superior is out of the picture, and the only person he's got with him is an imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a funny, interesting thing the Doctor and Stephen have in common is that they both get easily frustrated, so they bicker, and I think that's why I think they make such a good team. And then Dodo is just portrayed so stupid that they both just get frustrated with her. And I, I like that dynamic, even though it doesn't always work out in the script, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's something writers forget about sometimes in these stories, because I think of the quick turnarounds and the endless rewrites. I mean, I'm a Dodo fan. I want mm. to be a Dodo fan. And I think when she's good, Agreed. she's great. She's very good in the Gunfighters. She's very good mm. in the Savages. By God, she's awful in this, isn't she? I mean, she <laughs> she is incredibly play school. She loves enthusiastically expounding and labouring the obvious throughout. She still doesn't understand the concepts of what the hell they're doing after four episodes or three and a half episodes of game playing. I mean, what is th- what's that all about? Is she supposed to be naively, gormlessly optimistic, sunny, uh, such a sunny disposition that she thinks the best of everyone? But if that's the note they're going for, you could, I'm sure you could do that without... I mean, it's okay earlier on when she's sympathetic to the hearts in episode two, but as you say, it just gets ridiculous later on. Where... <laughs> At the end of episode one, the fake TARDIS shows up, <laughs> and she stood in it. <laughs> and she goes, it can't be empty. So... Okay, well, <laughs> it is. But then she does exactly the same thing at the end of part two. Uh, she just meant it can't be empty, <laughs> not whilst I'm standing there. See? It's got to be the real one. And then during Hunt the Thimble, uh, Hunt the Key, Stephen tells her they are just there to distract you. And it's in one ear, out the other, because straight away she's trying to help rug smash the plates or whatever she's doing and then Stephen has to tell her again a few minutes later and maybe even a third time and what the hell is she doing with the chair <laughs> why does she sit so in the a chair? line that stood out to me that she said where she said like something on the lines of like the toys have a secret life of their own like she she genuinely believes like yes she i think she's aware that they're toys and they're being brought to life but i think she also believes that these toys still have personalities of their own as well. So she believes, she knows they're not human and stuff, and she knows they're being the toy maker's possession, but I think to an extent she thinks there is some mm. sort of humanity in them. And when they get shrunk back to doll size and that, she thinks the personalities are still in there. But I think she is written younger 
Yeah. <laughs> That's about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, by, by about 20 years. I like her dress, though. And I like Stephen's costume as well. I suggest suggested this is Innis Lloyd's influence. Suddenly she's dressed um, in a short skirt. It's both um, a bit sexier and a bit yeah. more hip with the... the uh, is it a Dylan? Bob Dylan cap? So, which is presaging what he'll try again more successfully with Ben mm. and Polly. Yeah, I, I think it is the first uh, instance in Doc 2 of the miniskirt. So yeah. this is when the 60s comes about. By the way, listeners, uh, Kieran is wearing a Peter Purvis stripy sweater. <laughs> <laughs> the toy maker, Michael Goff. So if you're a big Avengers fan, he's already made a big impact in the Avengers at this point, hasn't he? As the uh, creator of the Cybernauts. Yeah. Am I wrong in not being really impressed by Michael Goff in this? I'll tell you what. No? In, in, in episode four... You benefit from being able to see his expression, his face. But I feel perhaps unfairly that he's rather phoning it in. He's just playing Michael Goff. Yes, you can see in his other work that he's much better than he necessarily shows in this because there's not so much to work with. In fact, for a story about the Celestial Toymaker or called the Celestial Toymaker, he doesn't actually appear that much or have a lot to actively participate in. He should clearly... He should step up the plate and be the, the main villain in the last episode. If we're going to get rid of George and Margaret and replace them with somebody else, it should be the toy maker, not Cyril. But mm. there you go. Yeah, it's tough because, as as Kieran said, you know, he's not given a lot to work with. But yeah, I just, I just, I've seen Michael Goff in all sorts of things, and this is about the least animated that he is. So, yeah, it's a shame. It feels like a lost opportunity, but. Having said that, he is playing against himself for, yeah. <laughs> for over half of it, pretty much. And when we do get to see him in episode four, the visuals add to his performance. So, yeah, it's a bit intangible, so to speak. To try and find something positive to say, he's a good professional actor. So he's even phoning it in. He's never less than spot on with his delivery. And because he's a good professional actor, he doesn't overplay it. Mm. So, you know... There's nothing to it, but it's it's in there. Mm. I mean, he's not much better in Arc of Infinity, so he, he's obviously not for your Time Lords or Eternals. He's, he has the, the voice you think that a figure, a, a supernatural figure of godlike power would have. But trouble is nobody ever gives them personality to go with their godlike powers, yeah. do they? Mm. He should be more petulant. If he was more petulant, which he clearly is with his cheating, and but he keeps his calm, which um, which is less interesting to watch. But that's not his fault. That's that's the writing. I mean, I always liked... I think this uh, echoes my thoughts on the story as a whole, but I always liked the idea of the toy maker being this omnipotent being who can do anything he wants, but he chooses to spend eternity playing games, you know. Because he's bored. Yeah. They're all great ideas. We get this sort of stuff in Star Trek a lot, don't we? It's yeah. a big Star Trek thing, the godlike creatures that play mm. games with humans, but that's all later, so... Um... The Q in Star Trek is, is my favourite character from that show. Kieran, you've got a type. You've got a real type. <laughs> I, I do. I have a very, yeah. I like the sort of the mischievous, omnipotent god. Without going into too much detail on the story, The Queen of Time, which Brian Hales wrote bit later on for the prospectively for the second doctor and which was adapted by big finish i i forget that i everyone's a, everyone thinks of it as a sequel a, another world set in the celestial toy maker verse it isn't he's basically reusing the same idea and changing all the names 
But um, the ma the main thing to say about it is that the character, the main character, who is um who's a lady this time called Hecuba, but she she's much stronger. She's not uh, possibly. I mean, maybe it got derailed right at the beginning when Hartnell's taken out for two episodes because if his plan, perhaps there was a much better balance with there's more toy maker business if Hartnell's going to be in it all the way through, which kind of knackered his central conceit, didn't it? So anyway, when he has another go at it, the the eternal character, the eternal game playing character is much stronger presence. It's all still, it's still the main thing. Um, the Doctor playing games with Hecuba and the companion Zoe and Jamie off playing a different set of puzzles and games. So it's very much the same idea. Just no trilogic boredom or none of the strain, none of the stuff that the other hands brought to this that diluted the central premise. And the, the Toy Maker was such fun, so fondly remembered. He was brought back later almost well i suppose you're referring to the nightmare fair sure shall we talk about first briefly as brief as it is uh brian hale submitted a, a storyline in 1975 for uh season 13 which also featured the celestial toy maker the celestial oh. toy maker at the end as the sort of final big bad of that story but obviously didn't go anywhere and the main yeah attempt at returning the the toy maker was after Brian Helser died in 78, but uh, was it Graham Williams wrote a script for the original mm. iteration of season 23, The Nightmare Fair, and that was uh, set in Blackpool and was going to have the toy maker studying humans to help him design a, a deadly video game out of a fun fair in Blackpool. Unfortunately, that was in 1984, uh, right before the show was uh, unceremoniously cancelled. But it did get very far in. It was going to be the first story, and so full scripts were written. Michael Goff was set to return, Matthew Robinson set to direct, and there had even been a reference to the story you know, recorded at the end of um, Revelation of the Daleks. Colin tells that tells Perry he's going to take her to Blackpool, which is the moment that gets freeze-framed in the broadcaster's episode. It's mm. about 30 years since I've read The Nightmare Fair. It's not very well regarded as a, as a story in itself. No. It, it seems very sort of mm. 80s, doesn't it? Uh, the Doctor t yeah. tests the video game, apparently, which I'd hate to think what the graphics yeah. of that would have uh, looked like. <laughs> oh, you've got the opposite problem here. Rather than having too many hands involved, uh, you've got somebody tasked with writing it who doesn't want to. It's, got, it's not Graham Williams' idea. J&T is doing it just to please the fans. He's given it to somebody seemingly by picking a name out of a hat at random. And he hasn't even picked a name out of the hat of writers. He's picked <laughs> one out of the hat of producers, so that's a bit peculiar. Um, yeah, and he, what, Graham Williams goes off, watches part four, and thinks, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> it makes it contemporary. I suppose that's a good idea. But again, that brings it back down to earth again. We're not in another... This might have been another opportunity to have a better go at visualising, uh, you know, another dimension full of gameplay. But no, it's set on Blackpool Pier, so I don't know. I don't want to dissonant just for that, but I think that's a terrible idea. Um, I Big Finish recorded it, and it's um, endless. I, th I mean, they record, they've got the original scripts, and they record them without editing them. And I think some of the episodes are 40 minutes long. It just mm. never ends. And you have the same problem. You feel like you're watching other people playing video games. I mean, I say that as if... <laughs> As if we all agree that's a terrible idea, but we're in the Twitch, the world of Twitch now, aren't we? Is it just a recurring theme of, and just constantly, is, is it like a, a cursed fate, including this character in a script? <laughs> but I think Josh has a good, an interesting point there, because it's such a dropkick of a, 
a good idea, you'd think, this character. Mm. And it's obviously got an appeal, um, at least ostensibly. But, you know, it sounds like they've never quite made it work. But they have, I mean, enlightenment works, doesn't it? Mm. For me, anyway. And the gods of Ragnarok, they work. And like I say, Q and people like Loki, similar sort of... Yeah, you know, characterizations you could do, yeah. they all work. So I think you know, the, if they brought him back, you'd have to change his characterization to be more of an active character mm. in whatever plot they put up. But it can be done. They've used him several times at Big Finish, and he has worked because people have, they don't tend to plonk the idea in somebody's lap. People have come forward and said, "I've got an idea for this." The first time they brought him back, John Dorney wrote, put him in a rather quiet little story called Solitaire. He, he bases it more, in a sense, he, he does the things I said you shouldn't do. He sets it in a little toy Victorian wood panel toy mm. shop, but it's another worldly toy shop. Anyway, it's a very simple story, but he boils it down to all the things that it should have been, <laughs> all the best ideas, and does them very well. And since then, other people, the Radio 3 academic Matthew Sweet has written a toy maker story for Big Finish. You know, yeah. Who plays him? Uh, it's originally played by David Bailey from Robots oh, of yeah. Death. And... Um, I believe he's been recast since then. So so just to finish off, we've got uh, the rest to deal with. We've got Peter Stevens playing uh, the Knave of Hearts and then the almost mute Kitchen Boy. And then obviously in part four, uh, Cyril, but you can call me, but my friends call me Billy. That line j- screams of having been crowbarred in by somebody yeah. or, or possibly even possibly even an actor, ad- you know, Rehearsal ad lib. Is it in the um, camera script? You can call me Billy? Just seems too on the nose. What's the need for it? He's got his bloody costume on. Why would you need to tell the audience? The kids and the audience are going to know Billy Bunter even if they don't know what the word celestial means and they've never heard of George and Margaret. Cyril is standing there in schoolboy uniform but still with the kitchen boy's chef's hat on. He takes it off and replaces it with a school cap. He's leering at them horribly. And uh, no, it's just remember me, I'm Cyril. My name is Cyril, you're Stephen, aren't you? Doesn't seem to be. My friends call me Billy. I'm going to put a small wager on that having been an idea of the actors, thinking, because actors are like that, you know, they think they're no better than writers. They take the subtext and make it explicit, and they think they're doing everyone a favour. Well, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but, as I say, they would. everyone would have known, because it's, it is Billy Bunter's mm. costume, isn't it? It's identical. If it's not a, a authentic recreation, it's probably just a reuse of a pre-existing Billy Bunter costume. Yeah, I mean, we didn't we, we didn't have the Candyman turning the camera and winking and saying, "I'm the Candyman," or as my friends call me, Bertie Bassett. <laughs> 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 and of course, they had to issue an apology at the end, <laughs> at the end of episode four for any apparent similarity, like his exact <laughs> costume. <laughs> Just in case you happen to notice, I think he he's incredibly game and 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 does what is necessary for the episode, Peter Stevens. But the setup and introduction is quite weird, because the toy maker introduces himself as the most threatening of ideas. Uh, what could be more innocent than plump schoolboy? Now, that doesn't make sense in itself. <laughs> Because I can think of plenty things more innocent than an overweight schoolboy. But then the portrayal doesn't match that at all. And even Stephen latches onto it straight away. 
it points out that he's not as young as he's pretending to be. And then he doesn't play it innocent at all. He's trying to, you know, get one over from them. From the off, the only person who falls for this bag of contradictions is, surprise, surprise, Dodo. <laughs> who who somehow realises halfway through after hours of game playing that I think I might enjoy this game. It's a bit of a mess, but the portrayal is, I'd say, good. Am I wrong? Is it a, a crowning masterpiece at the end of the story to bring in this Billy Bunter character? Or have I misunderstood? I'm quite open to being wrong. Um, I just don't get it, really. He's probably the most openly sinister villain of the, hmm. the four stories, uh, four episodes, which yeah. may come from that original idea of George and Margaret getting more and more sinister as the story goes on, potentially. But he's not introduced as that. He's introduced as being there could be nothing more innocent than a fat schoolboy. Do you see what I mean? It, it doesn't sit mm. well with me on its own internal logic. He does have a proper grisly death. That that shot of him electrocuted smoking on the floor. Mm. Ah, yeah. One of the few real sort of body horror, really. I'm I'm hoping that we get something similar with the um the twisted clown dolls at the end of episode one. Although it wouldn't be quite quite as bad. It's the same sort of yeah. The King and Queen of Hearts just turn back into playing cards, don't they? But it, they're described somewhere as twisted. So I imagine we'd have got something similar, but they wouldn't. Yeah, have. as they die. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, really. The idea is that he reverts to a sort of Humpty Dumpty doll, I take it, unless it's just an incredibly unconvincing body prop. But yeah, it is quite grisly. Well, it's so charred, you can't really tell. If it was any higher definition, it wouldn't be allowed to be done, I don't think. Yeah, or, or lingered any longer on the smoking remains. So let's let's finish off this section by talking about Carmen Silvera of Allo Allo fame and uh, Campbell Singer. I think, for me, they're the best thing about the cast. Mm. In that they they have the most to do. They play a completely different pair of characters for the three episodes. Their performance is good. It's great, I'd say. Very versatile, very character parts, aren't they? And they they're, they're really giving it their all. I'm not saying the material is the best that they have to work with, especially as the sergeant and cook. But yeah, they, they were a real delight this time round, just to, to focus on a positive and hear the variety that they brought to it. I don't know how everyone else feels. Again, if, um, you know, if they really were stuck with the two actors they'd already cast, they were lucky that they had people mm. who were old troopers and versatile. Jerry Davis, um, in his introduction to his, his novel, implies that it's it was complete luck that they were able what's he called the middle-aged players already hired for the serial rose magnificently to the challenge not (laughs) middle-aged well campbell's campbell singer was arguably but not carmen silver implying that they were too old to be able to (laughs) it's amazing at their elevated years (laughs) they were actually able to act that's horrible (laughs) (laughs) i think you could write that now in a memo well, Silvera had the last laugh because she outlived him. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you get. Oh, he says, the slightly wicked schoolboy school Cyril was not meant to resemble Billy Bunter, just the capacity for mischief that exists in most schoolboys. Is that right, Jerry? So- <laughs> Your Honour. <laughs> Let's wrap up this section then with a bit of a, a review and a personal take. So I did a, a quick <laughs> scratch Twitter poll 
That's right. They just said, the Celestial Toymaker, yes or no. There were only 200 votes. But, <laughs> yes, got two-thirds of the vote. No, got a third. I do like this question because it's it could mean anything. Does it exist? <laughs> um, is, it, is it a story, yes or no? Yes. I, I do like the broadness of it. That's great. There were a few objections to the, to the <laughs> lack of detail in the question uh, and refusals <laughs> to participate. So take it away, folks. Um, Kieran, you go first, because we've given this a pretty hard time. I, I don't want to diminish your enthusiasm for it, but go on. I, I think a lot of my love for it is the nostalgia of having been so sparked by the idea when I read about it in Doctor the Legend as a five-year-old. You know, the colour photos that are in Doctor the Legend is really what sparked my... Uh, desire to do colorization because it's they're not just color photos there's lots of color photos of doc two stories but they're so colorful like steven's top and you know dodo's top and those the the dolls costumes ballerina what the celestial toy maker wears it's it's almost a crime that this story was made in black and white and then wiped that that's really where it all comes from for me and you know like reading the riddles it's like just getting stuck in my head but, you know, these days I look at it and, you know, yeah, it's got a lot of shortcomings. It's probably the, it's the product of what's probably the most shambolic scripting process, perhaps, in all of Doctor Who. You know, it's clear that there's zero budget for sets or costumes. But whilst it's a poorly produced script of a poorly scripted idea, it's a great idea. <laughs> I, I could just repeat what Kieran said. I mean, you know... Uh... Several decades apart, I may be exaggerating, but um, it's almost exactly the same. I can trace it to issue 40 of Doctor Who Weekly. I'm always telling the people this. I, I fished it out of my collection. I thought that issue 40 of Doctor Who Weekly was full of colour photographs of um, Celestial Time Maker. In fact, there's only one on the cover, but th- there are lots of black and white photographs on the inside, which are, you know, <laughs> they must have been they're vivid enough that I me- remember them being in, in colour. And it's a combination of the, the visuals. This is in, the, by the way, this is in the feature where in Doctor Who Weekly they would pre-see one of the early stories. They started at the beginning and moved through um, for people of a certain age, or slightly too young to have, re- to have got the, the making of Doctor Who. But it was before the programme guide, so in this particular era, this was where I learned about these stories weekly. I don't know if it's Jeremy Bentham who, who summarised them. Um, he did a lot of writing for it in that era. But he... Alongside the very vivid photographs, somebody has boiled down the plot in very nice, simple, you know, boys' adventure paper prose, and they've punched up the details. I think we've all said that the bit with the chairs in episode two is is the best, and it really sounds very unpleasant. The King of Hearts places a doll into chair seven. At once, the arms snap close and crush the wooden mannequin into splinters. Chair three burns one Mm. doll to a crisp while chair one spins on its axis until the doll is flung against the wall, its neck snapped, and so on. And in fact, the last one, the king and queen both sit on the chair together, but it too is deadly. The chair enfolds them, and seconds later a sticky resin oozes out in their place. I've never quite forgotten that bit. I don't know where they've got that from, because I assume, is there any suggestion that anything remotely like that happened in the, or was intended to happen? But I think you can see why it it got to my eight-year-old mind. It looked great, and it sounded really macabre and unpleasant. So it's all been downhill for the next uh, 42 <laughs> years. But it's a strong enough initial impression. 
and of course, and th that coupled with, like Karen, I liked puzzles and riddles and games and things. I liked children's programs like Jigsaw, which was full of riddles. I liked the adventure game, which I will mention any time I get a chance. Anybody remembers the adventure game from the early 80s, British TV? The design on the floor in episode one of this, at least according to the loose cannon re reconstruction, with the little uh, shapes and really reminiscent of the Drog the Drogna game from the, uh, from the adventure game. Please leave that in, Tim, because somebody out there will know what I'm talking about, and that's all I need to make, <laughs> make my day complete. Uh, and I can tell you about that chair. The king and queen of hearts die when uh, the king offers her his hand. They go over to chair number six and slowly sit down. The chair collapses, entangling and imprisoning the king and queen. So nothing about oozing. No, no sticky black resin. Well, it makes me wonder if that's one of those things that... Um bentham misremembered because mm. he didn't take <laughs> unlike in living with his copious notes um in his series of notebooks which apparently are very accurate bentham seems to have remembered things in through rose-tinted spectacles and of course then formed the opinions of a generation of fans <laughs> but you know thanks for that because you <laughs> he single-handedly gave me the the best version of this story it's only it's only about 500 words you should all read it I think that kind of encapsulates like my feeling about this episode and like missing episodes in themselves. It's the myth of them. Mm. I, I think you both have mentioned things, the things you've liked about the story that just did not happen because <laughs> we've invented this idea that this story is bigger than it actually was. Because I, I always think that if the story did exist, I think it would be referred to as like, oh, it's like the play school episode. You know, I don't think it would have the myth and the the reputation it does if it yeah. because it, it has that reputation because it doesn't exist. Considering there's some weirdos who thought Tomb of the Sidemen was disappointing when they saw it. I mean, how on earth are they going to cope with, with it? Some people thought the Web oh, of yeah. Fear was disappointing when they saw it as well. <laughs> I don't know who those people are. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into that. But yeah, I, I think. Yeah, sometimes a legend oh, can't. It Josh? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm not a big Web of Fear fan, but I, I no, I've I've come to like it more. But um, I was expecting something different. I think I know we're not talking about Web of Fear, but basically, I think episode one is probably the best directed episode in the whole thing, and then after that is downhill. And I think because episode one existed, and it's and it's actually relevant to this because episode one existed, and it's so good. The myth of the rest of it is there as well. You think, oh, the rest of it's got to be as good as this. And maybe Celestial Toymaker episode four, because that's one of the better episodes of it, of the story. You think, oh, the rest of it's going to be really good, when that's not necessarily the case. Considering episode four already isn't as good as Web of Fear episode one. <laughs> Hot take. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And that the final test isn't a strong episode in itself, but it's a stronger episode, it appears than some of what we can hear now but as i said before it's a very physical story the game playing needs to be seen and not heard to, to understand what is going on and so you end up i ended up having long years of of listening to what was going on and needing a break between the episodes i couldn't do it all in one sitting which i usually can with a four-parter but yes i mean when i was growing up we used to have the celestial toy room dropping on the doormat once a month and it still runs now. And so that added to the mystique that this was a great lost classic adventure. Mm. But I can't add anything that, that you folks haven't already said. You know, the idea is brilliant and strong. 
unfortunately it suffers from too many hands perhaps so there you go we thought we had two completely opposing factions and basically we all think exactly the same (laughs) (laughs) that's that's very nice very equitable So as ever, we'll get on to the missing episodes aspect. Just quickly, though, Kieran, why do we have all these lovely colour photos? Do we know why? Well, we don't really know why there are so many. There are some theories. It's possible that there was something about this story in particular that caught picture publicity's eye that made them think that this story was worth getting extra coverage of. But it, it might just be a rare example of most of the photos from this story that were taken have survived, whereas... A lot of other stories may have received the same amount of photography and they no longer exist. So I just wonder, we're missing a trailer as well for this, aren't we? So the, the entire episode one was transmitted from videotape, but also transferred in its entirety to 35mm. And this is thought to be for a trailer, 35mm uh, providing the requisite standard. I just wonder whether this was because Doctor Who was moving to a new time slot for the Celestial Toymaker, i.e. Uh, 5.50 rather than 5.15. Perhaps that's why there was cause to have more photographs taken. Well, what I can say about the photos that we do have is that we've got photos that were taken by John Wood, the director. We've got the design department photos and we've got radio times photos taken by don smith who quite recently passed away he's a legend of british television for his photography and we have bbc uh picture publicity photos which is where all the color photos seem to come from because some of the original transparencies uh have codes from bbc picture publicity on them which is not a definitive indication of their origin because um for example some of the tomb the cybermen radio times color photos also uh, wound up getting picture publicity codes on them at some point but the big point is that uh, the codes for these toy maker transparencies includes the initials af as part of the, as part of the code and alan ferdman was a picture publicity photographer whose initials are present on the back of some of the BBC prints for photos from episode 3. So you can be reasonably confident that this points to the uh, colour photos being BBC publicity. All of which adds up to a very high number of photos for the story, at least from the first three episodes. I think there's a total of something like at least 150, I think, in total for the story, of which only three of them I could point to are from episode 4. There's two design department photos for the TARDIS set and uh, one colour shot of Stephen Dodo and Cyril uh, holding dice on the Hopscotch set. So whilst the, the reconstructions of episodes 1 to 3 are almost are amongst loose cannons you know, best thanks to the amount of photos they've got to work with, if the tables were turned and episode 4 was the missing episode, you'd have a, a lot of difficulty putting anything together at all. Like we'd have very little idea of what the Hopscotch set looks like, you know. Yeah. So that's a lucky coincidence then. So Paul, why don't you talk us through the recovery of the final test and then the missing episodes aspects? Mm. Well, the, the recovery is, <laughs> simply enough, in 1984, a staff member at ABC discovered episode four of Celestial Toymaker, the, the final test, 
in uh, in their film library while it was being cleared out to relocate uh, the, what was left of the films there. And they it was always thought at the time that it was a rather freak survival story because, of course, nothing should have been left in the archives. But what's confused some people is that um, ABC apparently have records of destroying episode four and and not the first three episodes, which is rather peculiar considering that's the exact opposite of what seems to have transpired. So some people come up with a theory that the episode that was found wasn't actually the original Australian print. And the theory goes like this. So hold on to your hats. We start off with a celestial toy maker arriving at BBC Sydney in 1968. They supply Television New Zealand with a batch of stories from the Space Museum through to 10th Planet, all of which are broadcast over the next couple of years by NZBC. New Zealand is elected not to broadcast the gunfighters, which would have followed on from Celestial Toymaker, for whatever reason, and therefore they lopped off the next episode title. So their print of the final test would not have said next episode. This becomes relevant later on. <laughs> Celestial Team Toymakers moved on from New Zealand in a larger batch of stories in 1972 and ended up in Singapore. Singapore aired it in 1974. So the final step in this theory is that uh, Singapore then had these had a number of Doctor Who stories on its hands that it didn't want anymore and decided to return them to Source, which from their point of view was BBC Sydney after this um, little adventure they'd been on. <laughs> which would ex could explain why <laughs> one episode of The Celestial Toymaker ends up back in Australia, but not the copy that they, were, that they originally broadcast, which had been um, well and truly dispatched from this mortal coil by that point. And furthermore, it was misposted so they didn't in fact send it back to bbc sydney but back to the abc yes which adds to the freak element of the survival story a very happy misposting indeed but another strange um coincidence the person who found the final test uh, in the in the archives in 1984 was also the person who may well have destroyed the original copy and this <laughs> is the infamous jet we've not mentioned him before have we no we haven't Right, Jet is this, uh, which is possibly his forum handle or possibly his only given name, we don't know, posted on the internet in 2003 and admitted, decided to get off his soul, the fact that he was responsible for putting a bandsaw or an axe through all the uh, original Australian prints of Doctor Who. So having admitted to that, he then, uh, I don't know, to try and balance things out, <laughs> said that he was the person who was doing a search of the program vaults in 1984, looking for another missing program, as he puts it. But this is how he came across a single Doctor Who episode that had been misfiled and thus survived the junkings in, in the mid-70s. And he personally checked with the BBC archives, discovered that this was a missing episode and he had the only print remaining and put in motion the process of getting it returned to the BBC. So thank you, Jet. You, you came good in the end. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> People have debated endlessly the fact that he refers to having having um, put his axe through the Australian copies of the first approximately 300 black and white telerecordings. Now, to get to number 300 is not an obvious it's not an obvious number unless he's remembering extremely loosely. What what does it imply? Extra multiple prints of some stories? No, I think it's just a story that's grown in the telling a bit of hyperbole so we've we've outlined i hope you're taking notes listener we've outlined the uh, the theory uh, which was predominantly put forward by wiped um, as to exactly how 
a second alternative copy of the final test ended up in Australia. But uh, we don't here at the Missing Episodes podcast think it, that that's the correct answer, do we? <laughs> no, apparently not. The main reason why it can't be the Singapore print is that the Singapore print came from New Zealand and the New Zealand censors cut, made a small trim to episode four. They cut out Cyril's line, or you'll be killed. Um, and that line is still there in the copy we have. So it's not true. <laughs> so. so I think White just tried to tackle this in that it postulates that they could have done an audio censor on it and run a bit of tape over the, the audio track unfortunately against this argument is that the episodes still have different run length uh so the new zealand copy is of a different run length to the copy that was found in australia so yes we, we don't believe it and there was that ingenious explanation for why the uh, the next episode credit would be missing it's also a fact that the abc would cut off the next episode credit because they already knew that they would off they might be repeating stories out of order and you've answered my question which was going to be um are there other examples of episodes that have censor cuts listed to be taken from them that we know for a fact were not actually cut despite them being listed as supposedly being cut but the thing about the runtime uh, makes that null and void anyway i don't think there are examples that certainly that i can recount off the top of my head because so very little has been found from either australia or new zealand yeah well there you go yeah Certainly Australia, anyway. New Zealand prints have, have made their way to Africa and been found, but uh, the only Australian print that has ever been found was the final test. So pull your fingers out, guys. What are you playing at? But we did do the sensor clips, though. <laughs> yes, thank you. By the way, there's a theory or a um, perhaps a, a, simply a joke associated with why uh, the final test may have been misfiled at the ABC, which is that they may have thought that it was a game of cricket. Nice. Nice bit of folk etymology there. Very short game of cricket on a very small reel of film. But yeah, love it. I, was, I wasn't going to bother mentioning this bit, but as we're talking about hidden meanings in the phrase the final test, apparently when, um, when the episode was returned to the BBC, Nathan Turner's first thought was not, oh, whoopee. It was, ooh, <laughs> I wonder if this is a coded message. The Australians have found all the missing episodes of Doctor Who and they're testing us to see how we respond. If we respond nicely, they'll give us the rest of them. And if we uh, if we respond inappropriately, they'll destroy them. So apparently he flew down there to um, <laughs> full of optimism and discovered that no, it was not a hidden message. And there was no more where that had come from. Yeah, it's part of his ongoing fascination with the Celestial Toymaker, isn't it? How very of the Toymaker. How very of the Australians to behave like the Toymaker. Perhaps it's a final test. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you had the right connections, you would have seen this episode at some point between 1984 and 1991 when it was officially released. I I didn't have the right connections, but I, even I saw it on the end of a videotape um, that somebody that was in circulation. And then the rest of the world got to say, oh, in 1991, when it was released on the Hartnell years, VHS, um, at that point it still had the next episode card missing. Twelve years later, when it was digitally restored properly for Lost in Time, they did reconstruct the next episode. Yes, although there's a little curio there, in that the camera script says that the next episode caption is simply Holiday for the Doctor. But the ABC film assessment says that the next episode caption says A Holiday for the Doctor. So it's thought that, in fact, it did say A Holiday for the Doctor, but the RT went by the camera script and wrote in the slightly uh, grammatically poor Holiday for the Doctor. 
but um, I think the prevailing theory is that that's a mistake. It'll be interesting to see whether it's corrected down the line. Having said that, the same Australian paper paperwork calls the episode the final test, just final test. So who knows who's right? Who knows? We need a, a complete copy to be found elsewhere, eh, Paul? And just to say quickly, we will cover Australia <laughs> in depth another time. It's, it's, it's a really complex situation, Australia. Uh, there is documented evidence of lots of episodes being sent back to the UK. We've alluded to it in the Galaxy 4 podcast, but we'll we'll give it its fair airing another time. So where else was it sold, Paul? It was sold to Barbados. The second Australia was the first sale. Second, Barbados. Third, Zambia, both 1968. New Zealand, 1969. It was... Um, in 1971, it's made it, it made its way to Sierra Leone. I mean, that really is the one we need to mention. The, the final sale to Singapore we've covered, That was we know where that print came from. Sierra Leone, we are assuming, would have had its own prints. And regardless of where they came from, they never went anywhere else. Well, there is a possibility that Barbados was part of what was called the Television International Enterprises Network. So it's possible that the same prints went from Barbados to Sierra Leone. Now that rings a bell somewhere. I think I've heard of their archives mm. organisation, Television International Enterprises Archives, which I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe is still alive and well and operating out of Wigan. So, yes, not to labour the point, but it's been a while since um, since we put out our Mythmakers episode, so you may have forgotten, but we did, we did cover the fact that there are some interesting things to say about Sierra Leone. It has been alleged by um, the the owner and operator of Television International Enterprises Archives that, S that Sierra Leone sent their prints back to London in 1974. We've n Nobody other than this man has seen any evidence to support that point. On the other side of the scales, there have been quite a few assertions over the years that the Sierra Leoneans might have hang hung on to their prints into the 80s when they were still showing them reported sighting of the savages. Into the 90s, the early 90s, a, uh, a British worker apparently saw a pile of Doctor Who tapes, as he put it, could easily mean film prints, in the Sierra Leone television archives. At the other end of the 90s was a rather unpleasant civil war which resulted in significant damage to parts of the Sierra Leone broadcasting company. There is documentary evidence that they lost their gramophone archive. It's been stated by missing episode luminaries such, luminaries such as Paul Menezes that um, they lost the entirety of their, what remained of their film. There doesn't appear to be any external support for this. Yeah, that's right. Well, Phil Morris has been interviewed by Toby Haydock and he said that the one of the rebel leaders during the Civil War destroyed a shed that contained any film prints, but luckily slash unluckily the doctor who films had already been sent back in 1974 this appeared to contradict what had been earlier proposed and indeed i think it's fair to say that paul venezes was was caught out by this somewhat and that he i think he said that it, that wasn't his understanding but if phil says it it must be true but i think he also said this is africa and anything can happen now just to cap off the story and let's just assume that, that what has been said is correct. Curiously, about five years later, Phil Morris revealed that he'd found two BBC films 
amongst others, in a derelict cinema in Freetown. And happily, they were missing episodes of uh, Malcolm and Wise, and they were broadcast on TV. So uh, I, I've said it before, I've said it again. Does that leave the window open for a telling of a story where other films had escaped the SLBC and made it into the cinema? There has been no further comment. And as Missing Episodes Commander-in-Chief Paul Venezes once said, around 2012, I think, that the Sierra Leone story may reveal itself to be surprisingly quite interesting. Surprisingly quite interesting. Hmm. Yep. Whether that has been fulfilled by the return of the Malcolm Wise episodes, who knows, but there has been radio silence since. Well, of course, he can't have... He can't have meant the Morgan Wise episodes because film didn't find them until 2017. <laughs> he quite definitely <laughs> had not found them until 2012. So, something else to come, which is exciting and which Paul cannot say because it's not his story to tell. We wait. <laughs> that concludes our look at the Celestial Toymaker and we hope you enjoyed it. And if you have please do give us a nice, preferably five-star review with a few words on Apple Podcasts. Please look us up on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR on Facebook and just look for the Missing Episodes podcast. If you'd like to lend us your support, go to www.patreon.com slash missing episodes where our supporters have early access to finished episodes and all sorts of other goodies including our serialised Omnirumor timeline. A mighty Kublai Khan supporters and I take part in a, a live monthly Missing Episodes chat which is a lot of fun speaking of whom, thanks so much to all of our patrons but especially those mighty Kublai Khans Tony Carroll, Bedwyr Gulledge David Matthewman, Gary Gillat Jess Jerkovic, Paul Cook Ray Badrick, Simon Exton, Simon Whitehead Sinead Morse, Tim Arding and Unknown Consciousness and a ton of thanks to B. Garrido for her assistance with this production. All that remains to do is to thank Paul and, of course, our brilliant guests, Josh and Kieran. Thanks so much, team. And we'll see you all next time for The Savages. Goodbye. 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 I hope you liked our little games. Goodbye. The one other thing is that in the war machines when the TARDIS prop is renovated for the first time between the location filming and the studio recording of that story they refit the front and back of the prop with two of the TARDIS shaped cupboard doors that are manufactured for this story which are designed to open outwards which the uh, TARDIS prop didn't do up until this point uh, and to stop the doors opening outwards when they shouldn't do uh, two little knobs are attached just like pieces of wood attached right at the top so from the war machines onwards you see those and that's because the front of the prop is replaced with these uh, toy maker TARDIS cupboards that have been you know, painted blue from the white that they are here it's also why the um, front and back police public call box sign uh, changes colour on the front and back uh, from the war machines onwards it goes from I think black text on white to white text on black or vice versa. And that's the explanation for it. That all comes from here. And they, they last up until um, the Seeds of Doom when the whole prop is thrown away. So those two of those TARDIS doors 
as fake TARDIS cupboards are, appear in every subsequent Doctor Who story up until the Seeds of Doom, in which the TARDIS appears. Is this sort of vestige of the original Dodo accent that she... Because we're, we were always told that she drops it immediately, like a hot, hot brick. But I, th- I feel like at the beginning of the first episode, there's still a tiny trace of that strange pseudo Liverpudlian thing that she was doing when she first came into the TARDIS and said, Hello, Doctor. What's all this then? Got a spare ship? Ooh. You should end, you should end by popping a sweet in your mouth and falling to the floor, writhing in agony.